We all devour stories from war-torn countries and watch the reporters on TV with rubble and destruction in the background. What kind of job is that? And who are the brave journalists who bring us these stories? I'm Pods with my co-host, Matt Robeson, and this is Beyond Politics, available everywhere you get your podcasts and on the Blue Amp YouTube channel. Our guest today is one of those brave journalists, Sean Carberry, a veteran war correspondent for NPR, whose resume also includes working for the Inspector General on Afghanistan, has a new book out. It's called Passport Stamps. Sean, welcome back to Beyond Politics. Thanks, Paul. Matt, great to be with you as always. So I know you're burning the midnight oil, pushing your book all over <laughs> the globe on a fabulous world publicity tour. But tell our folks, what I want to know, what was the most dangerous moment for you personally in all of your reporting? I could argue that the most dangerous moment was in the summer of 2012. I was interviewing a group of Afghan Kuchis who are basically nomads, the poorest of the poor in Afghanistan. And they lived near a firing range near Bagram Airfield. And members of their community would graze animals there. They would pick up scrap metal and suffer sometimes catastrophic injuries. So I'm sitting in this little abandoned house that they were squatting in, talking to them about the situation. The father is there missing part of a leg. Son is there with his arms gone below the elbows and talking about this, this tragic circumstances of them and their plight. And so in the middle of the conversation, I noticed out of the corner of my eye, someone walking into the room with this wooden tray and this sort of oozing gelatinous white goo on the tray and flies buzzing around it. And I'm looking and they bring it in and person says something. My interpreter says to me, they want to share their traditional homemade cheese with me. And I'm sitting there looking at this stuff, just thinking about all the other times I've had food poisoning around the world in my reporting and travels. I said, there's, I, I, there's no way I can eat this, but there's also no way I can refuse their hospitality. This is just, it's a cultural thing. You can't say no. So I'm just sitting there racking my brain for a way out. And so I just turned to my interpreter and I said, look, I don't know how you translate this, but can you thank them profusely for me? Tell them I'm honored, appreciate them sharing their culture with me, but I have an allergy to dairy products. I play the lactose intolerance card. It actually translated as my interpreter is saying this to people. I see heads. And I, I dodge that bullet. And honestly, obviously kidding a bit, but one of the one of the realities of doing this kind of work is often the most dangerous moments aren't conflict related per se. It's it is food. It's travel. I was in what was a pretty significant car accident in Rwanda once when I was driver was taking me into the Congo, totaled the car. Fortunately, I just had some some minor bruising. But some of those things were more dangerous. Reading your book, I almost wondered if it was sponsored by Cipro. I, I th <laughs> envisioned you going around with an IV bag. The only time I had to take Cipro was when I was directly exposed to anthrax during the poisonings on yeah, the on hill the of yeah. 2001. And you got it via cheese. I want to talk about another aspect of danger here. You open the book in medias res, it start mid-scene, and you're in some significant danger in Sudan. One of the things that jumped out to me in all of your amazing stories throughout the book, 
and you really put in a lot of detail is the number of times you have to hand over your papers. And mm, mm. You, by the way, it's also chock full of media references and cultural references that hit me square in the brain. Man, yeah. you threw in a Bud Light ad from about 15 years ago about a limo. Oh, I'm Dr. probably the Galakowicz. only guy in America who got what the hell you're talking about. So you're in the middle of this scene and you describe being stopped by four random men with Kalashnikovs demanding your papers. And it just so happened you didn't have your passport with me. This happens over and over to you. And it makes me wonder when you hand over your passport, you're putting yourself in significant danger right there. If you don't have your passport, you're in trouble. You could be, and these randos with rifles could confiscate it. They could do literally anything to you. Is that always in the back of your mind? Unfortunately, not necessarily in the back, but sometimes front because it did happen a lot. So yeah, we, my second international reporting trip was to Sudan, which in 2007 required all sorts of paperwork and permission and just layers upon layers. You've got to get the visa, you've got to get some permissions up front, then you get there, you've got to go to the press office and get your temporary press credential, you've got to then register your passport at a passport office and so just roaming around and taking a picture down a street. It was just the sandy street, nondescript. And then I just hear this noise behind me and I turn and these guys with Kalashnikovs come running up. And again, I initially was like, oh, they're going to run past me. Like there, there is something down the street that they're running toward. I wasn't too worried initially. And then they just stopped in front of me with the rifles pointed at me. And I was just so befuddled that it was like, hard to be scared or know how to react and i didn't know what was going on and they start yelling at me and basically the issue was that i had taken a photo of the u.s embassy they claimed even though my back was to it but anyhow yes yeah, so they go to this stuff and demand my papers i hand them the press card and all my paperwork from the sudanese government and they're like okay okay they needed the passport and because I didn't have it on me, they ended up marching me off to a little cell and held me and interrogated me until whatever it was, 45 minutes, an hour later, my fixer finally showed up with my passport. They looked at it and then they're like, okay, you're good to go. Actually, later on that same trip, I'm out in Darfur, I took a photo and some guys came running up to me on the street and started giving me the business. Uh, I showed them all the stuff and they quickly de-escalated and like, oh, come in for tea. And I'm like completely rattled from being practically attacked on the street. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. I'll pass on the tea. But yeah, that's the thing. You always had to have your passport on you. In Afghanistan, in Kabul, there were checkpoints all throughout the city. And every time you drive up to stop and usually I just hold it up, there is, was always that concern. Sometimes you check into a hotel in a foreign place and they want to hold your passport as some type of collateral and you go through all sorts of negotiations no i'm not i'm not surrendering my passport to you you can take a photo or a copy or whatever but but yeah that so many places the documentation was brutal and essential hey you included a chapter on reporting on the conflict over kosovo in part because you felt like it foreshadowed what we're seeing in russia's invasion of ukraine what echoes are you hearing now that you first picked up there? Yeah, the circumstances in 2007, Kosovo's preparing to declare independence. The United States and a lot of Western countries were supporting Kosovo. Serbia was opposed to it, and Russia was backing Serbia. And so I was down in Pristina, Kosovo, and I interviewed the top diplomat there. 
And he very directly said to me, he said, look, we don't outright oppose independence for Kosovo. We just oppose it happening without a negotiated agreement from Belgrade. So if Serbia and Kosovo agree on something, we're okay with that. If they don't and Kosovo declares independence, we consider that illegal. And by the way, that then becomes precedent. And he said to me in that conversation, so places like Georgia or Ukraine, where there are pro-Russian enclaves or air territories around the region that are separatist, pro-Russian, anything like that. He said, Kosovo declares independence without Serbian approval, then this opens the door to all of these other things. We're putting this yeah. in our pocket as precedent. And look, Russia has done everything that they told the West, and it wasn't just me. I wasn't the one person in the world who had that information. They were messaging that very clearly in their opposition to independence for Kosovo. One of the things that you're talking about, and I think what you're really good at and what really comes through in the book is you're connecting dots, right? And as you just said, Russia's been calling its shot like Babe Ruth in 1927 mm -hmm. for a long time. Anywhere where there's a possible foothold and a way to just latch on to something as a pretext to draw countries closer and closer back into what used to be the USSR orbit, they've done it. There was a fascinating report on this from the Senate Intelligence Committee back in 2018, where they laid it all out, all of the countries, non-US, that Russia has manipulated events to support a regime that's conducted attacks. We've learned a lot more about the Wagner Group and the wars that they've been waging as proxy wars on Putin's behalf in Africa. And right now, as we talk, no one is reporting, at least as far as I can see, on what's happening in Azerbaijan and their attack on Armenia. And you just see this constant thread. Is that, as you step back from all of your reporting, especially, and we've talked on the show before about Ukraine, is that sort of the connection point that you see here from Kosovo through Georgia, through Ukraine, through Armenia, that Putin is lurking in the background here, manipulating events to recreate the UR? Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Yeah, I don't think there's really much argument against that view. And it goes back even before Kosovo, for that matter, you look at the U.S. invasion in Iraq, and Russia was opposed to that at that time. They basically argued that Iraq was, was a sovereign country. It didn't pose an immediate security threat. And they Putin signaled then that, again, if the United States does this, we're going to put this in our pocket. And I, because I wrote, I think early on when on my Substack a piece connecting those dots about how the lessons that Putin took from the U.S. invasion of Iraq that he's also applied over the years, and a lot of it was the notion of might makes right that the U.S. invaded Iraq because it could, it had the power to do it, and the world couldn't stop it, and so that fueled more of his notion of building strength of putting yourself in a position where people can't oppose it. So he's got that going on. Then Kosovo happens and he says, again, this is an illegal independence movement. So now that opens the door to all these enclaves around the, the former Soviet Union, again, pieces of Georgia, Ukraine, Azerbaijan, wherever it might be, that basically 
puts that in play. And the real issue then became the fact that he he did his little nibbles. And again, to talking about connecting dots, another dot to this in 2008, August 2008, I was in Iraq doing my first trip there, my first embed. And I'm sitting in a helicopter. Beautifully laid out in the book, by the way. <laughs> sitting in a, a helicopter terminal waiting to get on a Blackhawk to go to the base where I'm embedding. And all of a sudden there's this commotion. I look and a bunch of Georgian soldiers come running through and the Americans are like, stay out of the way. They're all, they're being evacuated. They've got to go back and fight this Russian invasion in Georgia. And a bunch of soldiers run past. And then I look and there's an Orthodox priest, black robes, long salt and pepper hair, enormous beard, vestment, and he's wearing bulletproof vest over it all. And it was like just the most jarring visual thing of this Orthodox priest in full vestments with this tan flak jacket on heading to a helicopter. And I was so disappointed. My camera was like stuffed in a bag because I was about to get on a helicopter. I couldn't get the camera out in time to take a photo of this guy. But that was another ripple of this, the Georgia situation. It was a very quick campaign for which Putin paid no price. And so that then said, oh, OK, I can go this far without getting in trouble. How far can I go the next time? Mm -hmm. And so it's just been this ongoing nibble bite bite to the point of, yeah, Ukraine. And as you were saying, Az Azerbaijan, Armenia has gone below the radar largely because of Ukraine and other things in the world. But it's all, it is all part of the same Putin worldview, trying to recreate as much as possible of the former orbit and the global power that, that was the Soviet Union. I want to talk to you about the CIA. It comes <laughs> up in the Belgrade chapter where talk about the fact, quite humorously, by the way, that you're constantly mistaken for a CIA operative. And it's very funny in the book. The thing is, it's not a very funny issue. It's a real issue. The church committee back in 1976 disclosed the fact that the FBI and to a much greater extent, the CIA were truly using Western journalists, yeah, not just for information, but for cover. Hmm. And in 1977, there were regulations that banned the CIA internally imposed from doing this, except under extraordinary circumstances, and they continue to do it. And this has had real consequences for people in your line of work. Terry Anderson, the longtime hostage in Beirut, AP reporter, he told the St. Petersburg Times in 1996 that his captors said that they believed all you Americans are spies, yeah. I'm quoting here, particularly those who go around asking questions, which is what you have to do. Mm -hmm. And of course, there was the Daniel Pearl incident, the atrocity of what happened to Daniel Pearl, which again was on the pretext of him my being a CIA spy. My own father was an overseas reporter. He worked for Life magazine. He was captured by Iamin at one point doing reporting in Uganda. And the very first thing that he was accused of was being a spy. And he talked yeah. his way out of it. And it turned out, here's the twist to it. My mom just dropped this bomb on me a few years ago. Actually, your dad was doing a little <laughs> side work for the CIA. Oh, oh, great. Fantastic. Yeah. So how big a problem is this, Sean? Is this an ongoing issue for our overseas reporters? Depending on the location, yeah, it, there's no question it hovers around. Serbia was interesting. Serbia, and when I was there, was one of the most anti-American places that, that I've ever been. And understandably, the way things played out in their eyes over the course of the 90s. So very anti-American. I just felt 
constantly being scrutinized and people looking to avoid me. But yeah, the moment I got out of the airport, I got into a taxi to my hotel in Belgrade. Taxi driver looks me up and down, just goes, CIA. And I'm like, no, I mean, yeah, I'm sitting there going, cool. I had my first international reporting trip and I'm getting accused of being CIA. I'm like, hey, this is fun. But yeah, throughout throughout there, everyone just kind of looked and assumed and it was relatively harmless. People still talked to me. I didn't face any danger or threats there, but there were definitely other places where it felt more potentially dangerous and people kind of looking at me and assuming I was, and I was interviewing a guy I was in actually interesting. Another thing that that's in the news, but the Palestinian refugee camp, El Helway in Lebanon, there've been clashes going on there over the last few weeks. There was a number of people killed violence. It's the largest Palestinian refugee camp in Lebanon. I forget what it is now. I don't know, somewhere 60 to 80,000 people. But so I was there in 2008 and I was interviewing a Palestinian official who was one of the senior leaders in the camp. And we're sitting in his kitchen in this, this small, rather poor house in the, in the camp. And we're talking and I'm asking him questions about Lebanese politics and relations with Syria and the United States. And at one point, he leans into me and says, look, I know I'm not talking to a journalist. He says this through an interpreter, but he basically says, I want you to communicate this to Washington. And he really thought that I was an agent and he was doing like back channel messaging to the U.S. government. And I told him, I was like, look, I'm not. And he's like, yeah, it was like, he was like, I know you have to say you're not, but I know you are. And that was one where, yeah, okay, that was a kind of tense setting, a lot going on in that area. And okay, this is the kind of thing where someone could decide, hey, we're going to grab this American CIA guy. So there were definitely moments where I was aware and concerned about it. You know, your story about, you talked before about going to Iraq and seeing the Russian Orthodox priest in the flak jacket. It brought back for me my 2007 trip to Fallujah that Robeson made me go on. He said, you can only do one trail because the people in New Hampshire don't want anybody spending government money on travel. But the, I'm going to, I'm sending you to Iraq. I said, okay. I bye. also sent you to the southern border, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. so <laughs> I went to Iraq and there I was, a congressman in my flak jacket. Now, the difference was that I got off the plane at Bagram Airport and was immediately surrounded by like 15 army guys in full gear with their guns as we ush as they ushered us into the terminal. They were, I guess they weren't taking chances with members of Congress. And I got to say, during the trip, which was an incredible experience for me, it was the only time I'd been in a war zone. I was in Fallujah in 2007 when a Humvee st stopped on the side of the road while they made sure that there that the landmine they thought was there wasn't there. So I can relate. But one thing I didn't have when I was there on that Codel was fun. I, there was there it was not fun. It was scary. And so you write about conflict zone parties. It's the kind of thing that makes sense to people who are living the experience of being in the conflict zone with the tension and the fear, but it makes no sense if you're on the outside. How do you go about a party when you're worried about bullets passing through you? It's a weird dynamic, and I do write about 
some of my moments of discomfort with it. it and it was notorious, obviously, that there are all the stories about the early days and the invasion of Iraq and the people partying on the roof of Saddam's palaces and just absolute just hedonism going on as just outside the walls. People are fighting and dying and suffering. And so it, there's always something, you know, just icky about it. But as I kind of learned, the more time I spent in that world is that people who are under that sort of pressure cooker all day long and facing threats and are more or less working 24-7 creates that need to blow off steam. And so you end up with some ridiculous parties that that go on. I, I referenced there was a book in early 2000s, I forget the year now, but it's called Emergency Sex. And it was about this phenomenon among like the aid, the NGO community. And it got a lot of attention for focusing on that. It was a lot more that was covered in the book and a lot of important stuff about the challenges of and dangers of doing that kind of work. But again, it was like, I, I talk about the notion of scarcity mentality. One of the moments that I wrote about in 2012, when I was first in N in Kabul for NPR, there was a there was an attack that happened at this lake resort area a little bit outside of the city. And so the Taliban stormed this resort, killed a bunch of civilians, and they claimed that they were they're killing people who were engaged in debauchery, drinking, and adultery, and things like that. Attack went on all through the night, so I was up doing reporting on it. The next night, one of the European embassies had an enormous alien festival. It was just over the top. I mean, it was a giant complex. You walk in through the walls, and it's just, I don't know, it seemed like every Westerner in Kabul was there. It was just... I, I walked in and I see there's loud music and people drinking and hanging on each other, people making out in the corner, whatever. And I just, I couldn't process it. Having spent the night before covering this report where Afghan civilians who were just out having a dinner at this little lakeside resort were killed and accused of drinking fornication and things like that. And then hours later, the whole international community is having what looked like a step below an orgy. Uh, it, it really jarred me. And I just felt it's such an offense to the victims of the attack and just the broader Afghan people outside the wall. I, I stayed for a little bit and then I left. I just, I really couldn't handle that. Over, over time, again, I came to I don't know, and not so much embrace it, but it's okay. That's the world it is. I want to talk about another disconnect. I want to talk about bullshit. You describe a number of instances of getting fed bullshit. It's a theme throughout the story. And look, reporters run into this. Okay. I've talked to a lot of reporters as a campaign operative and as a congressional staffer. And there's a, we all know what the game is. And when mm -hmm. it's, when you're talking about American politics, it's, we get it. I'm trying to spin you a little bit. I'm trying to retain my credibility, but there's a certain amount of spin that I have to do. And you as a journalist, in, and when we're talking about American politics, it's like, get it. I have an angle that I'm pushing here. Mm -hmm. So it's all wink and a nod system. It's very different when you're talking about war zone reporting and matters of life and death. And it's really critical for you to, as Ken Kesey put it, transcend the bullshit. And we're just two months past Daniel Ellsberg passing away. Mm -hmm. And that's a reminder of just how important it is to transcend the bullshit 
that we sometimes feed ourselves and how important public perceptions are in wars. So I want to talk about how you encountered that and how you transcend it. You say in, in that chapter you alluded to before about being embedded, your first experience being embedded in Iraq, that you could see how the practice of embedding is meant to provide transparency and realistic wartime reporting. It also leaves the reporters with a little bit of Stockholm syndrome, as you mm -hmm. put it. How do you, I guess it's a two-part question. How did you transcend the bullshit and provide real factual reporting, even your own creeping sense of maybe getting a little bit of Stockholm syndrome? And how did that crucially inform you when you went to work for the inspector general, where clear-eyed realism was so important when looking at the situation in Afghanistan? How did you spot the bullshit and work your way around it. Yeah, hopefully I did spot enough of it. Some sometimes you don't. That that is the challenge when you're given access to a certain amount. I, there are times where it's you're just reaching in a black box and grabbing something and thinking that's representative of what's in the box. And I think realistically, by the time I got to into theater, it was 2008, 2009, when I finally started getting into Iraq and Afghanistan. I think it had been a pretty strong body of reporting to that point about what was and wasn't bullshit. I, I had pretty good sense of things going in and knew what kinds of things were going to be said and, oh, the Iraqi forces are capable of X, Y, Z, or the Afghans can do this. And you can hear when you're being sold something. And part of the way you gut check it is somewhat built into the embed system is because you're technically on the record the whole time. You go to dinner at the dining hall on a base and a couple of young soldiers are venting and you pick up the chatter. The colonel tells you the ideal PowerPoint version of things. And then you hear a couple of sergeants or specialists saying, I can't believe that Iraqi police force commander did XYZ, or we had to bail them out again. It is there and you've just got to be cluing in and absorbing. One of the things that happened to me in Afghanistan that did carry into my work at the inspector general's office is there was such a almost sort of Manchurian candidate-like recitation of talking points in Afghanistan for a while. Like everyone would talk about, look at the progress, right? You've got now... 10 million Afghans in schools, 40% are girls, and going down this list of educational statistics and infant mortality and all these things that people would rattle off as measures of success. And I remember as General Milley, who was then a three-star and he was the number two in, in Afghanistan, I, he just always, every talk started with some of these talking points. And it just got to the point, I'm like, all right, I got to start digging in on this. So I ended up doing a story about education in Afghanistan. So I went to the Ministry of Education and I sat and I talked with them and pulled out the numbers and they said, okay, yes, technically there are about nine to 10 million students enrolled on paper in school. Now we can't verify that. And we do know that a lot of those are ghost students that are there to inflate student populations so schools get more money. So they, they went through and they're down. We think it's around this number of actual students. Then it's of those students, 50% don't show up 
most days. And there are reasons why, like young boys, their families will pull them out of school to have them sell plastic bags in the streets or things like that. Girls would start getting weeded out sometimes by their families at certain ages. You're going down, okay, so the real number of students is really down to here. Of that, 50% are showing up. Then the typical school day in a lot of places was about two and a half hours. So you had a lot of schools that weren't big enough, so they would do two to three sessions a day. So you're getting two and a half hours of education delivered. Then we went to some schools and talked to teachers and students and families about the curriculum. And a lot of schools, the curriculum was pretty terrible. And a lot of the teachers weren't even qualified to Afghan standards. So you really winnowed down how much education was really being delivered. And it was just a minuscule fraction of this high-level talking point of 10 million Afghans in school. And so that was one where I did a lot of digging, did a story on that. And even though it was a non-sexy topic, a report on education in Afghanistan, it was one where editors of other organizations commented on, like to their reporters in Kabul. Like I heard a lot of feedback. That story got a lot of traction. And it was several years later that the special inspector general for Afghanistan did a story about education following the thread that I did. I worked for defense department inspector general on a project called lead inspector general, which was state USA, DOD, IG office together doing oversight. And in 2017, 18, general Nicholson was in command in Afghanistan and he was hammering the talking points again. And talking about we're turning the corner, 80%, once we get 80% of the population in areas under government control, then that's a tipping point, Taliban have lost, all this stuff. So I actually, in some of those IG reports, I brought in my experiences from, I was there in 2012, 13, 14, when other officials said the same things. And the outcome didn't happen. I remember I pulled in a quote from General Dunford when he was in command saying 80% of the Afghan population are in areas under government control. And the war wasn't won. The Taliban didn't surrender. And then years later, General Nicholson is saying, once we get to a point of 80% of the population, that's the tipping point. Taliban can't win. And so I put a lot of stuff in some of those IE reports that challenging those narratives, bringing historical examples from previous commanders, secretaries of defense, saying things that that didn't support that. And a few months later, those talking points started to disappear. And General Nicholson wasn't saying these things anymore and making these promises. And unfortunately, as we saw, things just continued to deteriorate. But so that that was a case where it was like, I had on the ground stuff. I had years of hearing people making pitches about what was happening in Afghanistan that weren't panning out. And in the IG reports, I was able to bring that to, to counter what the, what the pitches were about where things were going to go. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. Following up on on the bullshit theme, you were all over the world. Afghanistan, Sudan, Iraq, Serbia, Libya, Congo, Pakistan, Cairo, Libya. Is there any anything in particular that stands out to you as a situation where the reality when you got there was very different from the perception you had going in? Was there a trip that, a particular trip that changed your thinking 
the most about the difference between what you thought you'd find and what you found? So it's interesting because I've, I've thought about that. And I don't know that there was one where my perception going in was so far from the reality. I think what I found in a few places, though, was how the how the I guess how the narrative was being framed and sold and how the international community was missing important details. So, for example, the things that have I, I noticed in a few places, like in I was in South Sudan in 2010 before their independence referendum. And what was abundantly clear from the moment I got there was the moment the common enemy of Khartoum was out of the picture, the two main tribal groups in South Sudan were going to turn on each other to fight for who got the most power in the new government. And I just felt like the world was not watching that. But on the ground, it was just so clear that that was the trajectory. And that happened in, in Libya in 2011, after their civil war and the fall of Gaddafi. And on the ground, you're seeing these different militias that had risen up to fight Gaddafi. And there was a lot of competition and hostility. And the guys from Misrata said the guys from this town didn't do enough. And the militia from this place said those guys were terrible. And you're like, crap, they're now thousands and thousands of young heavily armed people in Libya who have been operating under this umbrella of anti-Qaddafi. And when he's gone, they're all going to revert into their sub-national interests and start fighting for power. And again, that's what played out. The one example that I write about, though, that was really troubling to me was Bahrain during the Arab Spring. And Bahrain stayed a little bit under the radar compared to Egypt, Syria, Yemen, didn't get into full armed clash. But things got really hairy there for a period of time in March 2011. And I happened to be there and was one of a small community of foreign journalists who were there because everyone else was in, in Libya or Egypt or some of the other places. And things got really hairy in the capital for a stretch of about a week. And there were massive demonstrations that were met with heavy force of tear gas, rubber bullets. And then there were these weird instances going on around the country where People were alleging that masked security forces were coming into villages and shooting people with birdshot and pellets and even in some cases bullets. And it was, it was all being denied. Meanwhile, I spent a day at a hospital in Bahrain watching people come in covered head to toe in birdshot or some kind of shotgun pellet wounds. One kid who was killed because he took a tear gas canister round to the head. And there were some x-rays of people. There were some some actual bullets inside of people. And just streaming in, I can't count how many people came in that day. It was absolute chaos and panic. Doctors were freaking out. They'd never seen anything like that in, in that country. And it was it was really disturbing. I called the U.S. Embassy at one point because there were rumors that security forces were going to attack the hospital. So I called the embassy to find out from their security office what they were tracking. And they're like, everything's fine. There's nothing going on. I'm like, what do you mean there's nothing going on? I'm at a hospital watching people come streaming in with severe wounds from, again, some kind of shotgun shells from tear gas, things like that. Nope, we're not tracking anything. And then so I did my reporting, saw 
all the stuff that was going on. Months later, I'm in Washington. I get invited to a dinner by a PR firm working with the government of Bahrain. They had some government officials in who sat and talked to the three journalists who were there talking about how horrible it was. And these Iranian-backed militants were rising up, trying to overthrow the government. There are people out in the streets with guns and this horrible scene. And they were using hospitals as staging grounds. They were full of weapons and using them as tactical operations centers. Also, I'm just quietly listening to these people spin this story. After the dinner, I went up to one of the guys. I said, it's interesting. I didn't see any guns when I was in Bahrain, when this was going on. And the guy he just froze. No one had told him that one of the journalists in the room had been there. And he absolutely froze. And I said, I was in the hospital. What I Here's what I saw. They weren't using it as an operation center. They were treating people who were being attacked by unknown security forces. And he was like, oh, I heard there were guns. And he's just come backpedaling and backpedaling. And I walked away from that dinner realizing this is what goes on every day in Washington. People come, delegations come telling these stories to people on the Hill, State Department, whatever, about what's going on. Iran is arming people in our country, and they're running around the streets shooting and causing mayhem. You need to support us. And and I'm like, it was almost all lies. And I'm thinking they don't have, people who are hearing these briefings don't have the information to push back on it. I'm like, I'm one drop in a bucket against this sort of tidal wave of bullshit that comes through all the time with people selling the narratives of what's happening downrange. And this is why it's so essential to have people out there reporting on this stuff, because if no one is bearing witness, then you know the narrative is written by the people with the money and the power and the ability to write the narratives. And then members of Congress hear that and go, oh, let's give more money to this regime to fight the Iranian-backed people. I think that's, I couldn't have had a better tagline and summation of the value of the book myself, because I think that really is what you get reading the book, which is, by the way, called Passport Stamps, Searching the World for a War to Call Home. I could have workshopped some other subtitles with you. It might have been overcoming the wave of bullshit. It could have been three cups of conflict, except I didn't make any of this up. It's actually all real. Sean Carberry, your Substack is also called Passport Stamps. It is very worth subscribing to. The book is now out, available everywhere. And thank you so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. You're welcome. Always a pleasure to talk to you guys.